welcome. You are listening to Desperate Acts of Capitalism, a podcast about money, marketing, and how it all goes wrong. Join us in a wonderland of burning money. I'm Evan Swope. I'm Arman Maharaj. And I am C.T. Kelly. And today, Arman, I think it's your go. That's right. Wee! Wee! Today, we're going to discover, rediscover, uh, what used to be a very big blip in the business world of the United States. Okay. Sweet. And that is a man named Al Dunlap, also known as Chainsaw Al Dunlap, also known as Rambo in Pinstripes. <laughs> okay. Fascinating. Also known as the Doyen of Downsizing, among many other monikers. Fascinating. Lots of nicknames. Have any of you guys heard of uh, Albert J. Dunlap? I may have come across this guy at some point, but I have n- I don't know anything about him. Same. Yeah, I mean, okay, so this is the kind of personality where, unlike other celebrities, uh, business celebrities have very short half-lives, right? There's no reason really to... <laughs> <laughs> you know, like... They're not long for this world. They, they, once they stop being relevant, there's no reason to remember them. Because all right. they do, all they're known for is making money. And that doesn't mean anything, right? It's not like yeah. Humphrey Bogart, right? Where like so many mm-hmm. years after his death and after his career ended, like people remember that name. But Albert, nobody remembers Al Dunlap, and nor should mm-hmm. they. But when he was around, he, I think it's worth looking into people like this because he represents a kind of phenomenon that still exists today. Uh, So I'm going to jump right into it. So if you could say Desperate Acts of Capitalism has a thesis to it, that thesis Mm -hmm. might be something like CEOs can't force their will on reality. Isn't that, do you think that's fair to say? Yeah, that that is definitely a a major theme of the podcast. Yeah, it may not be the thesis, but it is a major through line. Uh, I mentioned this because in almost every one of the stories we've gone over on this show, it involves a CEO who thinks they can improve or fix an enterprise through sheer ingenuity and willpower. Right. And this zealous belief in one's own special power over a business's success has been the driving force behind many of, the, of these CEOs that we've covered. I think, as an aside, it speaks to the kind of unmoored thinking encouraged during the glory days of neoliberalism from the early 90s to the Mm -hmm. mid-2000s. It was a time when corporate higher-ups had unprecedented power, and many capitalists were starting to believe that their power was not the result of the death of organized labor and massive deregulation, but rather a mystical mandate of heaven handed down by the invisible hand. <laughs> the rule of kings. Right. Yeah, of that gods. somehow it, it justifies itself, right? And that is right, when we get right. some of these huge catastrophes like Enron and you know, stuff like that. Because they charge headlong into against reality, right? With their right. horrible well, decision making. They start believing their own propaganda. Exactly. Right? It's one thing to say like, oh, I deserve my money and know like, know in the back of your heart that... No, yeah, I, ch- I cheated people out of this. And that's how it used to work. Bastard. Right. And that was like, people were at least a little honest about that. But something, something happened in the 90s where I think CEOs started believing the hype. And they're like, maybe I am a god pharaoh. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, right. to an extent. Maybe I can change the world. Even if CEOs didn't like 
some of their stakeholders, uh, cough, cough, like their workers, uh, they realized they had to deal with them and that on some level they many accepted they had to think about their workers, which seems right. like crazy, right, to say. I mean, in the sense that you have to give horses a place to live, you know. Yes, but if I can give away a bit of the rest of the script, um, now, I mean, it's become so normal to think a company should work for its shareholders and no one else. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's yeah. when this starts to get off the ground here. Okay. Whenever you have an unshakable belief, uh, like like the one we just talked about, in any social formation, uh, especially a belief rooted in greed and fear, you have the perfect foundations for a con of massive proportions. Mm. Now, a good con man never does all the work in convincing a mark to part with their money. Good con men identify situations where people are asking, begging to be conned and simply connect the rest of the dots. In this story, that con man is is uh, Albert Dunlap. Nothing special, nice. not a trace of genius or cunning. He was just a man who could recognize an opportunity when he saw one. Now, though Al would go on to be a larger-than-life character in the business world of the late 90s, the background we have on his early life is somewhat opaque, uh, and what we do know doesn't seem that out of the ordinary. But what is clear is that many of his personal relationships with his family and loved ones were very rocky. From the Wall Street Journal. Albert John Dunlap was born on July 26, 1937, in Hoboken, New Jersey. He described his father as a union steward at Todd Shipyards. The family moved to Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey, where a young Al lettered in football and track. He won admission to the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, where he excelled at boxing ring, at, in the boxing ring, but was a poor student, according to Chainsaw, a 1999 biography by John A. Byrne. That, that biography, by the way, is going to be really central to a lot of the script. I mean, John A. Byrne is a really good business journalist who worked a lot with Business Week, and he did a really deep dive into his life. I couldn't get full excerpts of his book, but I got a lot of reviews of it and commentaries on it from other business journals, and we'll be reciting a lot of those here. One thing that I've discovered doing this podcast is that the biographies of CEOs <laughs> are some of the most fascinating yeah. buck wild things yes. you'll ever read because they're they are so clearly eighty percent bullshit. <laughs> yeah, there's so many. It's but you mean autobiographies or or wait, would you mean biographies as well? Like even like even even like secondhand biographies. Yes. it's like so many of them are just mostly bullshit. I agree. It's clearly, like this was authorized by the CEO and yeah. like funded by the CEO. Right, and so and some clearly... people want to do it anyway. Some people look to idolize these people. Right, yeah. right. Well, it's like it's marketing, you know. Yeah, but. What's crazy about that is, like, the stuff that they include and think is normal yeah. sometimes is really <laughs> revealing. It's, it's like very shockingly revealing. revealing. It's hard to maintain the facade too long, you know? <laughs> it, it, shows you, it shows you where they step into believing their own hype. Yes. Uh, this yeah. is a case, I will say, this biography, as you could probably tell, is done by an, an investigative, is more t- takes an investigative approach. Is done by someone not not exactly sympathetic to good old Al, but honestly, it, I, okay. So it's it was released in 1999. So there's no ebooks of this on the web right now. And again, like I said, like these people burn out in the public sphere really quick. So there's no demand for a book like this anymore because he's irrelevant now. 
But right. as a personality, it's so interesting. I might I might <sighs> go buy it anyway because it's his life just sounds so crazy. I'll pick up where I left off in this Wall Street Journal article. He graduated in 1960 and began uh, three years of military service, stationed at a missile site in Maryland, a nuclear missile site. Uh, while in the military, he married uh, Gwen Donnelly. They had a son, Troy, but the marriage was stormy and soon ended in divorce. If you want a friend, get a dog, Mr. Dunlap often quipped. He was devoted to his German, his German shepherds, Brett and Cadet, who romped around the Dunlap's ranch in uh, Ocala, Flor- uh, Florida. He also kept rescue horses, cattle, goats, and donkeys. So, Aww. hates people, but loves animals. Great sign. Sounds like a real stand-up Really guy. good yeah. green flag. Um, one yeah, thing, yeah. Okay, so you've read Blood Meridian, right, CT? <laughs> I've, I've been rereading Blood Meridian, yes. So, you know how the judge, like, kills or sexually assaults or traumatizes everyone he comes across except for his quote-unquote pet the mentally disabled person his pet who in the story they use a word that we can't say on the podcast yeah and you wonder why does he keep this person and not like torture them right right there's something about controlling sadistic and domineering personalities like that when they find someone who's not as mentally competent as them they don't see it as an opportunity to take advantage of them per se, but they enjoy controlling them tacitly. You it's know like, what I mean? Yeah. It's like, I have a goon now. Yeah. And like a, a lot of brutal dictators like love their pets and, you know, and, but like, yeah, they love them because they can't say no and they will blindly obey them. Yeah. Right. Right. I, this is me like psychologizing a bit, but I think that kind of is something at work with Dunlap's personality. Mm. So yeah, he's basically Judge Holden from Blood Meridian. He's basically like the most evil thing ever. Like, <laughs> not exactly. He like, tortures exa- animals and people for fun. Yeah. <laughs> not exactly. But <laughs> we're saying it here, folks. Yeah, but, yeah. Okay, so I've just posted uh, this in, as you can see in the in This, this is a legal channel. claim. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, he's like two steps away. <laughs> this is okay. from a series of YouTube videos he made that all have like 500 views each to, pr- to promote his book. Oh, that's the good shit right there. <laughs> and yeah. In his main promo video, easily 90% of the video is him talking about his animals. Even though the book is about his business career and how you should learn from his business tactics. But the way he talks about his animals is like they're failed businesses. It's very weird. I've never, <laughs> I've, I've never heard someone talk about a horse this way. What? He was like, I had, the, uh, we were going to buy this property and there was this horse, Sweetie Pie, and she was sick and dying and they were going to euthanize her, but I bought her, I fed her well, and now she's a flourishing horse, you know? But like, he talks oh about, my God. about this for all of his animals, all of them. It's, oh my God. I've never heard even like, <laughs> I've never heard anyone talk about an animal like Okay, that. okay. But it says a lot about his personality. That's why I think it's emblematic. Now you've you've posted a picture in in the group chat for us, Evan. Could you could you paint us a word picture? Yes. Oh, I was gonna get to that. Yeah. Please, Evan, <laughs> tell us what well, you think he, he looks like. <laughs> well, I just want to say, like the composition of this frame is very interesting. There's like, a whole yeah. foreground, middle ground, background thing going yeah. on. Um, so kind of in the foreground. So the, basically, the the main structure of the image is there's kind of an old man at the de- at a desk. I assume that's Dunlap, right? That's correct. <laughs> yeah, and he he doesn't look like a real person. He looks like kind of a man in like a, a prosthetic makeup to look like an old person. 
And then in the foreground, kind of blurry, there's like an old woman, which I would assume is his wife, but it seems That's to be correct. very strategically placed in the foreground yeah. to suggest something that like, it's like it's yes, like, my wife is alive. It, it's like a quarter of the frame. <laughs> it's like a quarter, yeah, it's of, the, a a quarter of, the of the frame is a picture of his wife. And he never mentions, by the way. <laughs> Who he is divorced from, I believe. Oh, this is actually yeah. his second wife. This is his second oh, wife. Oh, this is the second wife. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then in, in the background, there's a photo of, like, uh, it looks like recruits at a naval academy or something to show that, like, he yeah. was in the military. So it's, you know. But it's, he himself it's, is in, like, the far right corner of the frame. Like, he's, like, not <laughs> yeah. centered and at he's all. he's dressed in a very strange outfit, too. Like, I can't describe. He's wearing a Hawaiian shirt covered in like american eagles and flags with a huge gold watch a massive to ostentatious me, gold it watch. looks like do you know the rapper cemetery no he's like a <laughs> horror rapper it looks like what cemetery wears to a barbecue like it looks like he's <laughs> he is this is like if this is like if cemetery was a state senator yeah like it a looks retired like state senator he is like went to a hot topic for 60 year olds or 70 year olds <laughs> <laughs> it's just very like he's trying to show that he has all the typical kind of like, you know, like marks of success, like white, yeah. military, love America, big yeah. watch, <laughs> yes. old, big house. Velvet and... rope holding curtains open. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. And, and I, I, I don't remember if this is in o Ocala or Boca Raton. He, he's a, he's a big Florida guy. No surprise. Of course he lives in Florida. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to show you three <laughs> other pictures of him and tell me if you see a through line here. Okay. Okay. Ooh, ooh! Right, can you guys describe his his fits All right. here? All right, listeners at home, let me give you let me give you a little taste here. <laughs> he looks like if you gave an egg a suntan, and then it was trying to sell used cars back in the seventies. <laughs> he has this; it, it's like the leftovers of a head of blonde hair and these big gaudy aviators and a big like broad shouldered pinstripe suit and a really loud tie yeah and he is i can only describe his facial expressions as snarling like a chimp yes yeah weirdly yeah. accurate yeah there's something off there something yeah, i i just right. thought he he looks like if jim jones was in the nra <laughs> Down to the sunglasses. Oh, and the, wow, yeah. The flashy <laughs> jewelry. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like the where like a, a cult leader and a and a like old right wing politician meet. Yeah, yeah. Alright, moving on. After getting out of the army, in which, as we said, he had been posted to a nuclear missile site, he made his first forays into the paper industry at Nitec Paper Corp. And this is in the seventies. Already, he was building a reputation for his brash, abrasive personality and callous treatment of company employees at the very best, and outright fraud at the worst. Oh. He was fired from the company in 1976, and according to one CNN article, he was, quote, subsequently accused by the company's owner of overstating inventory, fabricating sales, and covering up a loss of $5.5 million. That's too much. That's too much. You... <laughs> You don't, you don't accuse, you sue someone over that, yeah. especially in the 1970s. That's too much. It's already wildly criminal. And we haven't even yeah. hit, hit like peak neoliberalism. It's like wildly criminal. For a paper company. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing how many of these like rich CEOs have borderline, if not outright criminal 
you know, allegations against them very early in their careers and it doesn't oh, yeah. affect them at all. Like at <laughs> all. if anything, it helps them. Like yeah. other CEOs are like, Oh, yeah. this guy's got Dunlap some. never changes, but that wasn't the only company he was fired from. According to CNN, Dunlap was also given the boot from yet another business, Max Phillips and son, which I believe is in Wisconsin. None of Dunlap's questionable work history stopped him from skyrocketing to fame with the help of some spin and well-connected friends. In 1983, he became CEO of Lily Tulip, which is a great name, a company that sold disposable cups. Not long after, he would... <laughs> he, it sounds like he became the CEO of a gnome. <laughs> yeah. He became, he became CEO of Cinderella's Garden, basically. Not long after, he would go on to, to head Crown Zellerbach Corp, a timber company. And in 1994, he would finally land the role of CEO at Scott Paper, uh, which you should probably uh, definitely heard back of. Back to the roots. A real paper company man. <laughs> he loves paper. The jewel in the crown of his personal mythos, as we'll see. It was at this point that Dunlap started to make waves, like in, just in general, in, in general society. People were paying attention to this bombastic personality who was promising to turn this failing company, uh, Scott, around making tough choices other CEOs didn't have the heart to make, and putting their shareholders' interests I first. swear, literally all you had to do, like, okay, in the 1950s, if you wanted to be successful, you could, like, day drink and drive to yeah. work and, like, <laughs> hit the secretary and shit if you were male. <laughs> and it's like, in the 70s, you couldn't do that, but all you had to be was, like, a loud asshole. Yeah. And people would throw money at you. He's right. making some good points, even as you're wrecking the company you work for. Right. You can be visibly destructive yeah. to everyone around you. And they're like, I like the cut of this guy's jib. He has a resume literally of only failure up at this point. We should be clear. <laughs> right. Promote this man. He's made no measurable gains or benefits to his companies at all. It's sheer personality. Um, and this is why, this is why, like, money isn't real, you know? Like, like the right. stock market isn't real. It, it, it's all just a big game of confidence. Exactly. Now, you may be wondering, well, what did get Dunlap so far? Well, he's accumulated over his length of his career a set of wisdom, truisms, and performances that have bought into a vision of the tough uh, no-nonsense businessmen that make people like him. Now, I'm going to quote from some... I'm going to quote share with you some excerpts from his uh, his um, part autobiography, part business book, Mean Business. All right, so this is from the, the inside jacket cover. Okay. He starts with a, a dictionary-style definition. Dunlap, verb, one, to turn a company around at lightning speed. Fuck Two, you. Fuck To off. focus on the... <laughs> On the best, eliminate what is not the not best. A thing. You can't make that a thing. Three, to protect and enhance shareholder value. That is the most hack shit. <laughs> uh, Come I on. Lo I love this wisdom. Focus on the best. Eliminate the not the best. <laughs> means nothing. Oh. Wow. Swope. Verb. <laughs> To be the greatest and to not be not the greatest. It's like that, that <laughs> meme with Kant, with Kant where he's like, hmm, don't lie to people. And the other guy's like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> of course, Socrates. <laughs> wow. Not lying to people. That's the secret. Okay. So under that, that fake definition, 
But he claims people use this as a verb. I guarantee you, people do not use this as a verb. No one has ever that. used that as a verb. No. <laughs> okay, Herman. Except him. When, when, you, when you introduced the episode and said his name was Al Dunlap, I've been reading a lot of like Islamic <laughs> scholars for work. So I thought this guy was going to be like Al a Dunlap. 12th century. <laughs> yeah. He's, this is like <laughs> Prince Kashmir Al Dunlap or something. <laughs> from the yeah alberti l dunlap yeah. <laughs> from the the dunlap region of syria <laughs> yeah. uh, from the fertile crescent uh. okay okay uh, no um, more jokes that are only funny to me back to the episode yeah. <laughs> i think it's pretty funny okay here's again we're just we're just getting into the jacket cover guys all right mean business is Al Dunlap's specific battle-tested program, again, all defeats, record of only defeats, remember that, battle-tested program. <laughs> Nothing but else. For business success. It's all based on his incredible track record of injecting new life into tired companies. Best exemplified by the dramatic turnaround he quarterbacked. I love when they use words like that, quarterbacked at Scott Paper. When Dunlap became chairman and CEO in April 1994, Scott was in woeful shape. A $277 million loss in 1993, on credit watch for excessive debt, a stock that had been comatose for seven years. In a mere nine months, Scott had record earnings. The stock had increased in value by $6.5 billion, over 200%. And Dunlap merged Scott with Kimberly Clark and a stock swap that valued Scott at $9 billion and created the second largest consumer products company in the United States. That is not possible. Three, nine months is three quarters. I will you say... Do not reverse that in... I will <laughs> say that did happen for about two seconds. <laughs> we're going to get... We'll we're see, here's the thing. <laughs> I don't think that counts. <laughs> About two seconds it worked. Uh, we're going to get into that. But, uh, I can it do wouldn't... a lot of shit for two seconds. <laughs> Does not yeah. mean I can do it? I can fly for two seconds. If you have the gravitas and the reputation, you can make Wall Street do anything for about two seconds. Anything. <laughs> he also, okay, looking further in the book, I'll be honest, I didn't read all of it. I, it, was, it was kind of, it was rotting my brain after a while, but I... Uh, <laughs> This sounds mind-numbing. He made his own version of the Ten Commandments, basically, uh, called Ten Reasons oh. Mean Business is Worth Your While, <laughs> Worth Your Time. It's always oh. the fucking list. Armand, give it to me. These people. Yeah, come Jordan on. Jordan Peterson I'm going style. to give you some of the commandments uh, because okay. you know, I'm trying to get through all of them. Okay. The one. This one is going to blow your mind. Are you guys ready? Okay. Yeah. One. Business is simple. Remarkably simple. Oh. Period. <laughs> In oh. fact, oh. oh, it's simple. I get it it's now. <laughs> In fact, <laughs> if everyone followed my four simple rules, get the right no, management team. Breaking down into points and subpoints and lists of four I know. reasons and 12 reasons. Just like stop with the lists. So, okay, it's four points are get the right management team, cut costs. I mean, that's something that will always work. You should always cut costs, of course. Focus on the core business. And four, this one is, again, very salient. Get a real strategy. Crazy. 
crazy. I, mean, I know. I always thought that you were supposed to get the wrong management team, increase costs, focus yeah. on irrelevant I've things. I've been. I've always been a wrong strategy guy. Yeah, or a fake strategy guy. Yeah. <laughs> you find the wrong strategy. <laughs> so if you do these, the Harvard Business School and its imitators, as well as most consulting firms, would be out of business. All right. So remember, guys, business is simple. All right. Two. When problems start at a company, they're often traceable. Okay, now here we get to his weird corpo populism. Okay. <laughs> uh, when problems start at a company, they're often traceable to a self-aggrandizing corporate royalty, more concerned with its own perks than with the products the company makes or the services oh, yeah? it offers. Oh, yeah? You think? You think <laughs> maybe that's true? When you, when you must make changes... Start by throwing out corporate toys and their defenders overboard. Squeeze corporate headquarters and shrink high-priced, unproductive management. Now, I'm mentioning number two because of what point seven says. Point seven, reward leadership and outstanding performance at every level in the company. Most CEOs are ridiculously overpaid, but I deserved the $100 million I took away when Scott merged with Kimberly Clark. So it's like, don't give money to the cor- like the rich, overinflated board members, but give me one hundred million dollars. He published this. It's like, yeah, beyond parody. He was a bestseller. It was a New York Times bestseller. A, a lot of things are New York yes. Times bestseller. But I mean, it, it was genuinely read a lot. I mean, people devoured it. Uh, it's funny the, the, on the cover, like he does get a lot of endorsements from like Wall Street Journal reporters who should have known better. But the one mm-hmm. that the Chicago Tribune, was the Chicago Times, Chicago Tribune or something said, it was one of those things where you could tell they were like, we have to get something to put on the cover. Because it said like, like him or not, the book is certainly interesting. <laughs> <laughs> certainly read the book. Okay, and a point 10. You're not in business to be liked. Neither am I. We're here to succeed. If you want a friend, get a dog. I'm not taking any chances. I've got two dogs. What? He's got two dogs. Honestly, I mean, <laughs> it, there's. Some, I have something. two dogs. It is, in a way, <laughs> at least kind of honest. Like, yeah, this is the only way I can have any kind of companionship. <laughs> it's it's kind of like it's kind of like meeting an autistic kid, where they're just like, yeah. "Hi, I'm Eddie. I have two dogs," and you're like, "Fuck yeah, man! That's yeah. awesome! Yeah. I love that." It would be great if you like literally never. Inter- okay, for him, literally never interacted with humans because. Yeah, it's just like, the fact that he's, like, randomly bringing up the fact that he has two dogs is the only normal human thing okay. he has said so far. Okay, but I forgot to share an important image with you guys. Um, um, because he mentions his dogs a lot. He's got two of them, by the way. Yeah, I'm sorry, like, okay, I know this is, a, like, a non-video podcast, but the images, his visual presentation is a big part of his con, right? And I do think oh, it's, yeah. it's, it's fair to call it a con. But look at... This cover of his book that I'm quoting from, oh. they're like in front of him. They're like his dogs are more taking up more space than him, and he in the background. Can you describe? Can you guys describe the suit okay, he's wearing? Evan, Evan, you take point here. Well, I mean, I, <laughs> this is just really bad graphic design. It's so busy. Yeah. <laughs> the text is all over the place. I can barely read it. Um, but yeah, it's again this like weird <laughs> foreground, middle ground, background thing. But the one of the dogs is in the foreground and completely buried in text. Like you can't see the first dog. Yeah. <laughs> the other dog is mostly covered in text, so you ju- it kind of looks like a floating dog head by his knees. And then 
He's wearing like a very oversized suit that doesn't. Seem yeah, to fit it's like him way really too well. big. It's way <laughs> too big. It's like a trash bag. <laughs> the the tie course, goes like down to his <laughs> mid thigh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he looks like a JPEG that has been stretched down. Right. Yeah, and, and there's he's... more pictures of him and his wife and American flags, as always. It, uh, he he looks like he's shaped like a lava lamp. That's what his, he there looks is, like. There is a visible reflection from the 1990s lighting <laughs> off of his bald, bald head. Yeah. <laughs> and he's scowling at the camera and crossing his arms like a I Pixar character. I think it's character. thinning, but it looks in, the, in the photo, it does look bald as a rock. Yeah. It looks like this man is polished. Because <laughs> his hair blends in. <laughs> he looks like he's about to fall down. Like, he looks like he's not stable and he's going <sighs> to topple over. Now, I'm going like to give, on gonna give you one more picture, and just, just so we can f- finish this. Oh, no, no, no. Ar- Armand, this is gold. We are, like, okay. we'll take this to 90 minutes if we have to. Do okay. not worry. Great, great. Well, I mean, I have a lot more script left. Uh, good, good. Okay. No, this is gold. We're, we're going this. <laughs> now, here's the cover. Okay. Uh, actually, before I show you this one, I'm going to show you the other cover that's used for John Byrne's book. The John Byrne, I mean, all the stuff I've read from him has been really good. Like, I mean, I'm all, always kind of suspicious of uh, business reporters because, like, they always mm-hmm. have to be to a certain level sympathetic to these guys. Like, oh, there's a right way to do it, and they're doing it wrong. But this guy's reporting has been really good. Uh, and John Burns' book on this guy, here's one cover, which looks evil and scary. <laughs> oh God. It's like a, it's like a <laughs> thumbnail for a YouTube VHS horror video. Yeah, it looks like an analog horror thumbnail video. Yeah. But, uh, and here is the alternative cover, which I, I love even more. <laughs> what? That is a real picture he voluntarily took. What? Of course. This is where the name oh Rambo and Pinstripes came from. Can someone describe okay. this? Um, listeners at home, this <laughs> this first image is just it's like chainsaw, and then there's like a grainy picture of half of this guy's head grinning like a <laughs> chimp and scowling at the camera. It's like really close. <laughs> it looks like he has fangs. Yeah, it looks like he has fangs. And then the second one, this man. He's like he's like shot from below. He's wearing a pair of bandoliers and wielding <laughs> dual pistols with war paint under his like. I think they're Uzis, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're Uzis. And he's he's wearing like bandoliers and dual pistols and war paint and a bandana and then like a white business shirt and slacks. <laughs> it literally looks like, honestly, like no exaggeration. Looks like the episode of, and I only know this from ambient culture, but. It looks like that episode of The Office where they make an action movie. Yes. It, it, it looks, looks exactly like, like looks that. Silly. It looks like a Tim and Eric character. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is there a tiger on his tie? I can't really make it out. It's kind of blurry, but it looks like he might have wait, a tiger tie. Wait, wait. Hang on. Hang on. I th- It kind of looks... Oh, it's too blurry. I, I, I don't know if it's a tiger or if it's like faux alligator print or right. something. Yeah. Note from the editor. I found a higher quality picture. It's a lion. Uh, but <laughs> it's a great image. Um, but, th- I mean, this is someone who regularly in public appearances talks about business management in military terms. Uh, really cool. Yeah. Love that. Like, he talked a- he talked about his downsizing of Scott Paper like the storming of Normandy. That's how he talked about it. His own company. Like, they're enemies. But, yeah, the visual culture around this guy is great. Okay. Now, I have a, a few more things to cite from his own book. So now, now, deeper into the book. We see that often, when you look at what Dunlap sh- suggests in terms of managerial strategy, 
his actions at Scott and his tactics in general seem less like management refinements and more like strategies for securing unquestioned loyalty. So here we go from page eight of his book. Mm. Quote, some critics may think I fire people too quickly, but it's pretty easy to discern who is willing to make changes and who will maintain the status quo. I don't want the status quo. The former management screwed up. I didn't want them screwing me, me up. And then later on, at the same time, I go after people who don't perform. I am incredibly loyal to those who do. When I put people in leadership positions, I'm very supportive of them. And once I make a choice, I stick with it. Do you see the, the issue here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, like, he's, this isn't a recipe for success. This is a recipe for making sure you get rid of naysayers as soon as before they can judge you and keep people who are loyal to you. Right. This is a recipe for surrounding yourself with yes men that you can slowly make complicit in whatever illegal things you're doing. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's 100% what happened. Yes. Oh, very Trumpian. Mm-hmm. All right. And later on, here's another quote from uh, page 23. The media and politicians don't criticize the proper people and don't understand why I do what I do. The amount of money I get paid, which is so often criticized, comes as a result of the free market. My compensation is always tied to the profitability of a company, not to layoffs. Plus, it's literally not true. <laughs> literally, like the opposite. Uh, <laughs> it's just, like factually untrue. That's not how CEO. No. That's not how any CEO is paid, unless they have a contract. That's yeah. not how they're paid. And the way he phrased that is, you know, it. it it's clear he knows he's overpaid, but he's oh, yeah. like scrambling yeah. to say, no, mm-hmm. I'm not overpaid, actually. This is actually fair, and fuck you for suggesting otherwise. He was always the one negotiating to raise his his um, compensation as CEO as he's laying off more and more people at, at Sunbeam when we get there, when right. we get to Sunbeam. Anyway, for the rest of the quote. Plus, I invest my own money. I could have lost money at Scott. The whole thing could have collapsed, costing me $4 million in out-of-pocket cash and my job, and costing 20,000 other people their jobs. The 11,200 layoffs would have looked like a blessing. By the way, that's how many layoffs. I don't think I said that. Uh, How many layoffs you made at Scott? Oh. (laughs) Um, Wow. uh, First of all, one of the oldest con artists, if you know, if you followed con artists, and if you watch, or you listen to podcasts like Behind the Bastards, and you read about famous con artists in history, one of the most common con artist tactics is to look like you, the con artist, are investing with the mark. Right, like, like, right. Like, one of the oldest cons is, like, getting people to gamble, to bet on a, a game where you are betting with them. Right, But right. it's always been rigged in your favor. It's like, that doesn't mean anything. And also, he already walked away from the job. He was always going to walk away from the, from the job with $100 million in bonuses mm-hmm. and leave it hollowed out. It doesn't matter if you invested $4 million. I was going to say, it's like for the, for the quote unquote turnaround profits that you mentioned earlier, $4 million of individual investment is suspiciously low. Yeah. Okay. Um, now let's get into more of the details of really what went down at, at, at Scott. Uh, this is from the business journal um, from the Wharton school of the university of Pennsylvania uh, in a review of John Burns book. All right. Quote, Dunlap hacked away at employees and facilities over the next 18 months of his time as CEO and then negotiated a takeover by Kimberly Clark at a price that was more than twice what the stock was worth when he arrived at the company. Wall Street was ecstatic 
but others weren't quite so sure. Kimberly Clark executives learned after the fact that Dunlap all but eliminated major plant and equipment maintenance, slashed R&D expenses, and found other ways to borrow from the future in order to inflate the present bottom line. That was Dunlap's modus operandi, however. As Byrne puts it, Dunlap ran Scott's factories and drove people as if the company were going out of business. Even as Kimberly Clark executives spent hundreds of millions of dollars to clean up the mess Dunlap had created, Scott investors were singing the praises for enriching them. He was treating the company like what it was, a short-term investment for himself. Mm -hmm. And even though Wall Street only saw the first half of the story, or only paid attention to the first half of the story, where Dunlap was there, any future failings at Kimberly Clark were attributed to other people or said like, or ignored, just frankly ignored. And because they wanted to believe someone like Dunlap could exist. Investors right. wanted a Dunlap. He fit a role they wanted to have. They wanted a miracle magic bullet for any problem that a failing company had. Right. They're, they have a, a very large financial incentive to believe yeah. the hype. Right. Absolutely. And this is why a lot of investors ignore the red flags underneath the surface and continue to promote this guy. They, they seek out Dunlap to head projects for them. So in 1996, Dunlap would take the helm of the struggling appliance company Sunbeam. He owed this opportunity almost exclusively to the influence of a personal acquaintance of his, Michael Price, one of Wall Street's most infamous value investors, with a largely, with a largely, I know his name is Michael it's like Price. A jo- it's a joke name. <laughs> Come on, John Money. <laughs> <laughs> with a largely successful track record, Gary Stocks. <laughs> Honestly, the th- they're three brothers. Possible. <laughs> yeah, Chad Stocks. Of different last names. From the get-go, Dunlap wowed his board members, uh, both with his pomposity and his ability to liquidate corporate assets with astonishing speed under arbitrary pretexts. Dunlap, hey, Evan, when was the last time somebody wowed you with their pomposity? <laughs> it's got to be at least three or four weeks. <laughs> <laughs> it's, been, it's been almost a month since someone's wowed me with their pomposity. <laughs> Dunlap closed some of Sunbeam's most productive factories, including one factory in Florida where Sunbeam didn't have to pay rent as long as they made a profit over $300,000 per year. As long as, like, literally, they told these guys, make money, be a profitable business at a base level, and you get to use this facility for free. He closed that facility. In an attempt to, like, literally, he's, like, throwing away a money machine, basically. Literally, yeah. And, and uh, as an aside, this was a factory where, this was a, a factory where they made a pioneering technolo- um, electric blanket technology. It was an electric blanket that sensed your body heat and heated up on contact with it Ooh. naturally instead of having to use clunky thermometers inside the blanket. It was like a huge technological development, and he, he sold it immediately. In an attempt to avoid giving the fired employees benefits, he offered them jobs at a new factory over 200 miles away with the same minimum minimum wage compensation. Ah, yeah. So, yeah, the classic classic trick. Yeah. So it's like, oh, I'm giving you another job. You just have to move all the way over here every day 
oh, you can't take it? That's so bad. I guess you're willingly turning down this job so I don't have to exactly. give you benefits. Exactly. Now to work. Ooh. Oh. No, thankfully, this, this play was so obscenely obvious that ultimately Dunlap was induced to give fired employees the benefits he tried to withhold from them. So that's good at least. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but they were still forced to train their replacements. Cool. So, yeah, that's great. <laughs> now, for those who still had to work with Dunlap, the farce was starting to wear thin. From the Wall Street Journal, Mr. Dunlap wasn't always adept at customer relations. Oh, yeah? Yeah, the, the you don't need friends, I have two dogs guy isn't great at <laughs> yeah. talking to people? Not a winning personality? The best. <laughs> no. <laughs> Richard Davidson, a former Sunbeam account manager involved with sales to Walmart Incorporated, recalls a visit by Mr. Dunlap to the Bentonville, Arkansas headquarters of the retailer. Instead of addressing Walmart's concerns about unreliable deliveries of merchandise, Mr. Dunlap gave a rah-rah speech that sounded like a pep talk for investors, Mr. Mr. Davidson said. After the meeting, a senior Walmart executive murmured to Mr. Davidson, don't ever bring him back. (laughs) <laughs> don't bring that guy back don't bring that back. dude he's a ceo I, I always love in these episodes where it's like you have some like because not everyone in the business world is an insane psychopath a lot of them no. are just kind of like many of them are very mild mannered yeah they're like boring clerks yeah just like boring professional clerks who are like paper pushers and i love seeing them interact <laughs> with these like insane business moguls yeah. they're just like they're just like okay Yes. And like they're, they're talking to a toddler who's yeah. like talking, who's pretending to be an alien or something. It's like, oh yeah, you're from space. You have two dogs. That's awesome. <laughs> really cool. Yeah. A hundred percent. Anyway. And then he just like closed the door and locks it behind yeah, him. Yeah. Right, back it. to what I was doing. <laughs> Changes the locks. Literally. Raises the drawbridge. <laughs> um, but like, this is a toddler that everyone needs. He's a necessary toddler. He fills a fantasy. It's, he's a toddler that has... He's a toddler, and everyone around him that keeps putting him in things is getting hundreds of thousands of dollars for doing that. Yeah, and they're <laughs> blinded by the short-term benefit. They and they, But that's enough for them. They don't need to think about right. the long-term benefit because the short-term is so brilliantly profitable and nothing it, is in place to stop them from pursuing that. It, like, right. it systemically outweighs the long-term losses. Yeah. Like... Uh, it's like, I don't give a shit. I'm going to get out of this fine. Sure, I'm going to fuck over like 20,000 people getting laid off, but I don't care. They're not me. Yeah. Now, but through all this craziness, a real problem finally emerged that was going to seriously challenge the Dunlap mythos, his mythic mm. power. Soon Dunlap would run into a problem. He had duped Wall Street. Third dog. He had duped Wall Street too well he had raised sunbeam's value as a company so dizzyingly high that no one actually wanted to buy it it was too expensive he fucking he fucking um south seas companyed it yeah where people were like there's no way the stock price can be that high yeah that is bullshit (laughs) it's like when you when you see the skateboarder in the x games go up a, uh, a, a ramp to do a trick, but they accidentally go up like 200 feet. Right. Like, oh, like, oh, that's not oh, supposed that's to happen. That's not going to huh? end well. <laughs> Whoa. It was too good. From the Wall Street Journal, he might have escaped his infamy 
if he had succeeded in an attempt to sell Sunbeam in 1997 before its financial problems emerged. But investors' faith in his powers, fueled by his own hype, had pushed the market value to more than $4 billion, too rich for potential buyers. In 1997? Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's real... crazy. Real, that's insane. Real money. Yeah. Now that he was forced... Or, me. Now he was forced to run his business, not just hollow it out, the damage he'd done to Sunbeam became achingly apparent. Again, from the Wall mm-hmm. Street Journal. Charles Elson, an authority on corporate governance at the University of Del- Delaware, was selected by Mr. Dunlap to serve on Sunbeam's board. When Mr. Dunlap refused to answer the board's questions about the company's rapidly deteriorating profit outlook in June 1998, Mr. Elson helped steer his colleagues into firing the CEO. The $100,000 that Mr. Elson had invested in Sunbeam stock was entirely wiped out. So at this point, listen, even the yes listen, men he hired if, had turned against him. If you sit, if you, it's like, yeah, sure, I'll join the board of your company. And you sit down and the CEO refuses to answer questions. Yeah. <laughs> that's like... Oh, no, 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 We are not firing you. We are locking the doors so you don't flee to Bermuda. Yeah, yeah. That's like, you aren't leaving this compound, buddy. Yeah, close the blast doors. Yeah. Yeah, those are the sole people you do talk to. You're bored. Like, you can lie to everyone else, but if you're like, I'm not going to answer that, like, it's like the board can just fire you, right? They can just remove, they're like... the CEO is basically beholden to the board. Openly refusing to well, answer the, the board is your checkmate moment. Yeah. <laughs> that is, like, the, the key ethos of any good grifter is sidestep and bullshit, right? Yeah. yeah. You have a concern? Don't worry about that. I have some bullshit for you. Yeah. It's like, focus on this instead. Don't worry about that. When you're locked in a room and they're like, you need to answer these questions. You're the CEO. And you just go, no, I'm not gonna. Like, that's checkmate, buddy. You got that's checkmate. You're done. That's game Happy over. Happy to talk about my dogs, but can't answer the questions about the company. Did you know that I have two dogs? Have you seen the animals in my estate? They were so sick. They were so sick they were going to die, and I turned them around. They were withering like prunes, and now they're like this company, shiny and golden. Like a sunbeam. I have a gold horse. I named it Sunbeam. <laughs> Holding a gun. I have if you just horse. let me out of this locked room, I will show you my golden horse and named Sunbeam. And ye shall have glory. Please just step a little closer to my cage. A little closer <laughs> so I can whisper just in your ear. I stick fucking your swear. fingers through the bars. <laughs> I, have a gold I will horse. show you my golden horse. If you just come through the doors, <laughs> you'll never want again. <laughs> Please, gentlemen, if you'll just step onto the X marked clearly in the middle of the boardroom. And don't look up. I will take you to the slide that leads to my golden horse, Sunbeam. Pay no attention to the lasers targeted at your forehead. Uh. No more questions, gentlemen. Follow me. I have grown weary. (laughs) 
I will now retire to my chambers. <laughs> Jumps out the no window. No more questions death. about <laughs> debt ratios, gentlemen. Did you know that I have two dogs? Have you purchased my book? <laughs> All will be revealed in its pages. <laughs> this this actually happened, by the way. I have ten commandments. This is all. Yeah. <laughs> this is. These are quotes. Yeah. These are quotes. These are, yeah. These are. These are quotes. Yeah. This is based on our audio recording from. This is all from the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. 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 We. we this wasn't us play acting. This was us playing an audio recording from yeah. 1997. <laughs> right. They sound just like us. Yeah. He speaks in three voices. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. I swear to fucking God. <laughs> he is uh, like Hecate when you think about it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm going to lay out his crimes here. Um, this is from... Okay, okay, these are some of the highlights. I mean, we can't really get into all of his crimes. But this is from an article from CFO.com in 2001. I had to go to some very ancient archived uh, websites for this, by Ooh, the way. I bet. Uh, okay, so from CFO. The, all right, this could be kind of long, but it, I think it gets into some of the dirty details we need to need to look at. Oh no, no! Every time a CEO actually gets like charged and punished with something, we need to read that out in full. The SEC alleges in its civil suit that quote senior management of Sunbeam, led by Dunlap and Kirsch engaged in a fraudulent scheme to create to create the illusion of a successful restructuring of Sunbeam and thus facilitate a sale of the company at an inflated price, unquote. I, I think it's also always important to keep in mind, even though we said it here, they were never intending to make a sustained in, improvement and development of the company. It was always about selling it at an inflated price. Right. According to the complaint, the defendants employed a laundry list of fraudulent techniques including creating cookie jar revenues, recording revenue on contingent sales, accelerating sales from later periods into the present quarter, and using improper bill and hold transactions. Ah, I see, I see. So yeah, like, yeah. They're like, moving money to make it look like they were making massive gains, mm-hmm, basically. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, well, we're definitely going to sell this next quarter, so we're just going to put it on this quarter's, exactly. yeah. Like, yeah. This quarter's sheet. Right. Together with Sunbeam senior executives Gluck, Uzi, I don't know if it's Uzi or Uzi, and Griffith, they then employed improper accounting techniques and undisclosed non-recurring transactions to meet promised sales and earning figures, according to the SEC. These actions inflated the price of Sunbeam shares to a high of $52 per share in March 1998, it adds. If the company had been sold at an inflated share price, Dunlap and Kirsch could have reaped tens of millions of dollars from the sale of their Sunbeam securities, unquote, notes the SEC. On Tuesday, so this is in 2001, Sunbeam's shares were trading for 7.5 cents on the bulletin board, down from an Woof. all-time high of $52 hit in 1990. Yeah. So in two years, that's, that's a long way to fall. Like uh, that is like, levels like it's it's nothing. It's literally nothing. Yeah, it's nothing. John A. Byrne describes again. This guy is a saint for all the stuff he compiled on this guy. Uh, John A. Byrne describes Kirsch's deft accounting techniques, which included shifting two twenty one point five million dollars from reserves into income in nineteen ninety six, a move investors were unaware of until the following year. 
when the company re- when the company restated its financials. The move, quote, enabled Kirsch to disguise the company's calamitous erosion in profit margins. It helps to cover up the deep discounts given to customers by Sunbeam to stuff and load the, re- the retail channels. Yeah, channel stuffing, which we talked about a little bit, I believe, in the Acclaim episode, was a big mm-hmm. part of their un- highly misrepresentable a- misrepresentative actions. Mm-hmm. In most cases, I think channel st- stuffing is not strictly illegal, but it's very bad faith, and investors are going to not look at that favorably. From mm. what I understand, it's like channels it's like channel stuffing is one of those things where it's like you can do it's like a it's like an accounting trick that you yeah. can do that can help you move money around, but it's also you can move money around in ways that can really fuck with your balance sheet. Let me be clear right. of what channel stuffing is just sort of because it's not yeah, yeah. obviously. Channel stuffing it's as I understand it again, I know we have like a business mm-hmm. podcast here. I, I've, you know, I don't have a background in business, but channel stuffing is when you basically send convinced retailers to take on way more inventory than they would normally be prepared to, knowing that most of it is probably not going to be sold. Instead, it makes it look like you are being very profitable and being like, look, I'm selling all this inventory to all these retailers. That means I'm really successful. But in reality, mm-hmm. retailers don't actually want or need as much of what you're giving them. So it's not illegal because it's technically shooting yourself in the foot and you're going to fail eventually. It's just very short term. And there's nothing inherently harmful to other people. They're just going to give you back your inventory, you know, mm-hmm. as I understand it. Anyway. Right. Auditors later conclude, concluded that grill sales, uh, again, remember these people are making, selling kitchen appliances, uh, f- things involved with processing food, etc. Auditors mm-hmm. later concluded that grill sales made under massive discounts, extended credit terms, and bill and hold transactions inflated fourth quarter sales by $50, uh, by $50 million. Uh, again, uh, one wow. thing that made that ha- helped investigators cotton onto them or latch onto them was really realizing, Hmm, why are they selling so many grills in December? <laughs> like, that's like the time <laughs> when the people, people want grill grills. <laughs> it is not grilling one season. Day, wanting grills. No one, not even the most Texan Texan is grilling in December, you know, <laughs> right, it's just not right. done. So it's like, this is really suspicious. Instead of reporting revenues that were up 26%, to uh to 338.1 million sunbeam sales would have increased by only seven percent so they're wildly misrepresenting how much they were making mm-hmm. okay so that's the full cfo thing i'm citing here basically it was blindingly obvious by this point that they were not uh actually increasing all that much uh and then meanwhile undercut their production by to a huge degree, their own resources, including getting rid of some of their best factories, uh, like it, nonsense. Like this guy Dunlap clearly wasn't even looking at what he was cutting, because if he would, he wouldn't have gotten re- gotten rid of his best factory, the one I mentioned in Florida. Right. Basically, as a penalty for this, he got the classic kind of fake punishment that 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 SEC mm-hmm. gives people, which is he had to pay as part of this settlement. He had to he had to pay. First of all, he had to agree that he had that he had done all this, right? Mm-hmm. And he had to pay five hundred thousand U.S. dollars, and as a fine. And meanwhile, he had made 
hundreds of millions in all of his schemes and cons. At that point, it's literally like it's more profitable to just do this all the time. Yes. It's yeah. like, oh, I should be like Dunlap and find ways to con like him. Because even if, okay, they, they did stipulate he can never be part of a board again. Who cares? Yeah, who cares? Who cares? Yeah, was never I, the goal. He's loaded. He won. He won the game. For I know rich people that are like, it's like they'll park their car in like a fire space and get it towed every single day. Because to them, it's just like, yeah. oh, it just costs $400 to park here. Like, right. it's not a punishment. Like, it's just... That's how much it costs. And yeah. if you have $400 every day, you don't care. It's worth it. It's no longer a punishment. It's just a normal, yeah. It costs $500,000 to yeah. make $10 million. It's just like, you know, for them, it's like paying for a Spotify subscription for us. Like, oh, it's kind of expensive, but whatever. I don't care. You know, or, or something right. like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's important to remember that through all of this, he is not special. Al Dunlap is not special in anything he's done. There's nothing genius about him. There's nothing conniving about him. Uh, he fits some uh, a role that everyone on Wall Street wanted. And even though it looks like he failed these companies, and yes, these co- people like you know Kimberly and other people who had to deal with the wreckage he left behind uh, at these different uh, positions did lose. I mean, they were part of the people who lost. They didn't lose that much. All the other people who were following... Dunlap and urging him him on, they ultimately, you know, got what they wanted, most of them. And there's no, the punishment that he received didn't actually do anything to stop people like him from emerging. All right, I'll continue on with my script. One of the paradoxes of fanatical belief is that it is precisely when the world image of the belief starts to fall apart that the believer digs in and becomes even more fanatical, no matter the measurable material costs. That was the situation of the companies that took on Albert Dunlap to save their failing enterprises. Dunlap would come on and tell them what they secretly wanted to hear, but it couldn't do alone without looking brutal, crazy, or short-sighted. I mean, to these people, yes, on a certain level, they, wanted their, they would like their companies to improve, but they were looking for a magical solution. To their failing companies. Mm-hmm. They wanted something that would give them everything they wanted, not just a successful company, but a re-entrenched power in their own positions as mm. board members, mm. as comp- high-level management, etc. They wanted someone that would give them free reign to do what they always wanted, which was to attack, cannibalize, and consume their workers. Uh, and Dunlap gave them permission. And, and that, as you've probably heard from a lot of this, it's not that dissimilar from a lot of populist movements, you know? Yeah. It's, it, the similarities are very, very clear to me. Now, I'm going to end with an excerpt from the, uh, the Global Business and Organizational Excellence uh, Business Journal. And, and this ties in with what I was saying about Dunlap not being that special. He was already a representative of a new cultural era in business. Quote, in the 1990s, A new management mindset gained favor and sway in American business, shareholder value creation. The old idea that a corporation should strive to please all its stakeholders, employees, customers, communities, stockholders, had been replaced with a new, more reductive marching order. Please the stockholders. Stakeholders are total rubbish, blurts Dunlap. It's the shareholders who own the company. 
Even in a world of high-tech hype and and internet-fanned financial frenzy, corporations are still fairly limited. I can't stress this enough. Corporations are still fairly limited in the ways they can generate revenue. Cutting costs, raising prices, introducing popular new products or services, and selling off or recombining the business through mergers, mergers and acquisitions. And one more, says humorous Joe Queenan. We make money the old-fashioned way. We go public. Massive cutting, particularly in the workforce, was Dunlap's rapid, overriding remedy for what ails a company. But as Byrne cautions, when, quote, organizations become committed to maximize short-term performance and to satisfy only short-term investors, downsizing is taken to its illogical extreme, increasingly divorced from reality and economic sense, and increasingly informed by personal animus, ego, and greed. And as an aside, I think personal animus, ego, and greed could also be the slogan slogan of this podcast. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) uh, The story of Dunlap's (laughs) rise and fall is emblematic of its costly downside. Wow. (laughs) Bravo. That was great. Bravo. Damn. Uh, Thanks for joining me on this ride. So, uh, final consensus. two dogs. Yeah. What our final uh, our final indictment, final admonition, praise of our Dunlap. Dunlap, come on. <laughs> we we ran a lap and now it's done. How do you, how does he rank among Dunlap. the other um, corporate imbeciles we've covered? How do what, how do you see him in his context? What's your final analysis? One of the things that stood out to me was. Like, okay, this image of, like, the scowling guy in the pinstripe suit and the, like, the warrior CEO. This is, this is why Mark Zuckerberg showing up to investor meetings in, like, a grody hoodie was, like, revolutionary. Because this guy was the blueprint that Mark Zuckerberg was, like, kick-flipping on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're, like, doing all this posturing? Well, I don't even give a fuck. It's it's the early 2000s, and I'm grunge about this. Bleh. I don't even give a fuck. Yeah. <laughs> but characters like him aren't entirely gone. I mean, Musk, in many ways, is no. a similar kind of character. This is, like, how a lot of businesses operate yeah, these days. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, the rock star CEO who's really buff. Yeah. The, and, and takes they, a lot of supplements. Even though they've been... They've been brought low and defamed and uh, disgraced so many times. We have not learned anything. No one. Well, it's no. like, no, no, it's the, the financial world likes that. They're like, they love dirtbags. They yeah. love like, oh man, this guy will do whatever it takes. It's like, you know. <laughs> because it's like going to the casino. Yeah. No one hates yeah. a casino like, for taking your money. They think I'm going to be the one who wins. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, they don't. And even if you're a guy who like breaks the rules, they're like, yeah, stick it to him. You know? Like, yeah. They see the, they see regulators and like, honestly, some of their like stockholders yeah. as the enemy in a lot <laughs> yeah. of ways. Oh God. A hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, all right. I think that's where we got to wrap this yeah. up. Thank you for listening, everyone. Thanks, we folks. We will catch you next month. Bye-bye. Bye. We love you. Be love. rich. Play the outro. Boop it up, 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 boop it up,